Welcome to Mostly Books Meets. We're the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop in Abingdon. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life, and we hope you'll join us for the journey. this week, I'm delighted to have two guests with me, Kitty and Al Tate. Bread Song, the part memoir, part recipe book by Kitty and Al, was out on the 28th of April. The book tells the story of Kitty's battle with depression and anxiety and how baking bread with her dad changed everything. The result of their journey is the Orange Bakery in Watlington, renowned throughout the local area for their sourdough bread and fresh pastries. Kitty and Al, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Hello. Hi, thank you so much for having us. We're very excited. It's exciting to have you both on and to have two people. I've never had two people on my podcast with me, so it's it feels like a whole other thing. This is the last time. <laughs> <laughs> so the story of how baking has changed both your lives really is remarkable. With my podcast, I normally just go straight back to to the guest childhood and mm-hmm. um, work their way forward. And given that the creation of, of the Orange Bakery was a result of your experiences as a child, Kitty. Let's go back to when you were young. Um, what do you remember about your childhood and growing up? So, although I'm 17, quite often I'll talk like a 70-year-old. So I'll be like, oh, back in the day, or I remember my childhood. <laughs> Actually, less than a decade ago. So I had a really, really lovely childhood. We moved from London, Shepherd's Bush, when I was three. So Watlington is all I've ever really known. And it's kind of like the village that raised me. I went to the local primary school and then the local state secondary. And I know all of the characters in Watlington. I know their dogs' names. I know their kids' names. It's really, really lovely. So I've had a very happy childhood. Idyllic, yeah. It's a beautiful part of the world. Um, did you read very much as a child? So I have dyslexia and um, I am awful, awful at reading. So I'm very oral. So I love, love stories and I love podcasts and I love audibles and anything like that. But reading itself, the words, I always used to struggle with. Mm-hmm. So even when we wrote the book, actually, a lot of it I wrote because I love to write and I love words and I love to play with words. But afterwards to edit, I had my mum read it out to me and then I could make my edits verbally because I struggle so much with words. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I think also by talking the stories through or, or like your experiences in, in the book, it kind of brings the whole thing to life as well. So I totally get that. And I understand Kitty was a, was the bubbly one of the family. And what, mm. what, what are your memories of her as a, as a young girl? I'm trying to avoid using the word chaos, but it's sort of, <laughs> uh, it's there. Everything was sort of chaotic, but in the nicest possible way. Uh, incredibly effervescent, very, very sort of dynamic, brilliant at getting things done. Uh, for her <laughs> so she was just very very good uh, uh, this is lingo for impulsive <laughs> well, no, but also it's a real skill actually in making things happen just to gently keep on asking can I have it would it be can we can we can we paint my room can we do whatever it was and it would happen because she was so good not at nagging but just to sort of you'd fop her off with excuses 
and in the way that parents do. And then and I she'd, would break she'd go away and sort of <laughs> come at things from a whole different angle. Uh, yeah, she'd go away and do the research on the paint colour or she'd find out exactly how to make a lampshade or whatever. And, and you would then end up doing this thing with her, whatever it was. Quite often what would happen is I'd ask and then there'd be some reason, you know, some rational reason. I would go for it with half the equipment or trying to paint my room with, I don't know, a hand paintbrush and then do such a botched job that someone would have to get involved and help me and sort it out. So it was, to be fair, honest, it was a it pretty effective it system. <laughs> she still has this amazing ability at making things happen. And just very, very funny, very energetic, bubbly, always wanting to make sure that everyone was sort of getting on very good at sort of resolving any sort of arguments or problems that might have existed between siblings or between parents or between parents and children. Yeah, I'm a bit of a people pleaser. I'm also a feeder, so a feeder and a peacemaker. Yeah. <laughs> That's no bad thing. No bad thing. So, Kitty, in your teens, something started to happen, and yeah. over time, your anxiety levels increased, mm. and you started to struggle with depression. That must have been extremely difficult. What do you remember about that time? So like I was saying, I was really, really lucky to have a pretty idyllic childhood. And being the youngest, I was very much the bubbly, but also kind of the easy one. I was always perky, always happy, always trying to make other people happy. And over the years, when I started going into my teens, I was just so focused on making everyone else happy and being this person. I created this kind of character for myself that I was always happy, always bubbly, always easy. And then I started to really struggle with my anxiety and depression. And instead of being able to be open about it and talk about it and receive help, I bottled it all up because I wanted to keep this character. And anxiety and depression did not come into this character at all. I remember going on and on for months, trying to desperately hide all these emotions, all these feelings, all this fear until I just cracked one day and the anxiety and depression that I bottled after was like months and months and months and shaking it and shaking it and shaking it so when it did overfill it really overfilled and my whole world just turned upside down literally overnight. It sounds terrifying quite frankly it must have been really scary for you and obviously for your family as well and I know kind of reading through your story Al, you and your wife and your other children worked really hard to see what you could do to kind of get to Kitty and try and pull her out of, of this situation. What's really interesting about reading your story is there's obviously a turning point when it comes to the time you guys bake bread together for the first time. And reading it, it seems, Kitty, you have a really clear memory of that. Mm. Whereas Al, you're kind of like, well, I know it was something I was doing because I was doing a lot of different things, that, yeah. um, try, <laughs> trying all these different things. Kitty, what was it about that bread making that just appealed to you? What caught your attention? For me, it was so many different things. It came into the feeder and into the pupil pleaser. I was able to make something that people loved. And bread is extraordinary because you can eat it for breakfast, lunch and dinner and never get sick of it. At least I don't. Me neither. And then the second thing was, it was at a time where I just couldn't make sense of myself. I couldn't make sense of my purpose and I just... I just didn't feel safe and I didn't know what to do with this time that each day brand. So being able to bake and having this purpose of either feeding my sourdough starter or baking or getting out of bed in the morning to bake the bread, 
it gave me that sense of purpose and it gave me that sense of time. I knew that I had to be there the next day. I knew that I had to get out of bed because like, the bread needed me. It made me feel needed and that gave me a sense of real joy. Oh, I love that. And um, before long, you know, you started baking just the two of you and then you started making more bread than your family could possibly eat and you started <laughs> giving out to neighbours and other people throughout the town. What was it like when you suddenly started to get this response from your neighbours and, and people in the town, you know, people placing orders and getting in touch, saying, actually, we want more of this? Well, we still have a slight sense of imposter syndrome now, <laughs> which we had then. We are not trained bakers. We did not go away and go to a culinary school. And the same feeling that we felt then of just amazement that people wanted something that we had baked and they thought it was really good is the same feeling that we still feel when we sell out today. Yeah. I mean, I, I had a dream last night. My dreams are very unexciting. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. So my dream was actually about bread. And I woke up feeling really intimidated because I was looking at this amazing display of bread in my dream and just thinking, well, I can never do that. And then it took a moment of just sort of realising, actually, do you know where I was awake? Thinking, I can do that. I, I, we do do that every yeah. day. <laughs> so, so somewhere in my subconscious, I still don't think we can actually do it, or <laughs> that people actually like it. Yeah. It is literally... It's like the Truman Show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As Kitty said, it's a revelation, really, to us. And it was at the time that people were so interested and excited and genuinely enthusiastic about what we were doing. I mean, it's a bit of a segue. I'll, I'll come back to my original questions in a minute, but it was really interesting when we heard about your book for the first time and we knew, Kitty, you were coming into the shop to see everyone. And we've just been talking to customers about it, the fact that it's coming out. So many people are like, oh, my goodness, the Orange Bakery. Oh, my God, I love the Orange Bakery. You know, your reputation is everywhere. <laughs> it's just lovely to see something that you guys have produced yourself is just doing so well. Aww. So, Al, you, you took the decision to stop working in order to mm. be with Kitty during this time. And in the book, you said you felt like, looking back on it, it should have probably felt more overwhelming than it did. Am I right in thinking that at that point you were just doing what you felt like you needed to do? I was definitely reaching a point where I felt I was coming to a bit of a crossroads anyway. Katie, you know, my wife and I, have always had this really lucky ability to just sort of juggle between us, the sort of childcare and the working side, in that one of us has sort of gone full-time, the other one sort of gone part-time, and then we swapped over at various different points. And I, I had been sort of on a kind of part-time basis for a few years and I sort of knew I was reaching a point where we needed to have some sort of change. And so but I was just about to literally sort of press the button on agreeing to go full time with a, uh, a charity in London when everything happened. So it was a very strange sense of timing, but it, bizarrely, the timing worked. Now, <laughs> Yeah. I think the other thing, and I think we try and sort of get across in the book, was that for all of that and for all the, it sounds such a huge thing to sort of stop working. And it was we kind of thought we had no option. There was an absolute clarity about what we needed to do, just had to get Kit out of the space that she was in. And whatever it was going to take, we needed to do. And it was easier for me to do it than it was for Katie. So mm -hmm. that's why I was the one there. Otherwise, you'd be baking quite interesting loaves. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I read, what was it? You had a description about your mum's cooking. She can cook two things. I love the description. It was something like, uh, dog's dinner, which is rice and mince. <laughs> Even the dogs actually have been known to just sort of look. <laughs> and cheesy so, with so, which yeah. is basically just 
cheesy risotto. <laughs> that made me laugh out loud when I read that. I thought no. was, I, I, I'm definitely more in your mum's camp than your camp in terms of cooking. <laughs> How did you, because obviously initially you weren't baking, but you then moved into the world of sourdough. And there's some lovely bits in your book about some journeys you took. You went to um, a bakery in West London. You went to somewhere in Gloucestershire a couple of times because of a scheduling issue. You discovered the Shipton Mill, which is no distance from my other shop, actually, in Stow on the World. Mm. And then, obviously, your contact with the guy over in the States. There's lots of different stories. But what was it that kind of really focused your mind on sourdough? So, for me, it was this, this enormous hype around sourdough itself. I had never eaten good sourdough. Sometimes Deb would come back to London with the loaf from Gales. And although it was good, I always, always preferred the white sliced from the co-op. But it was just this challenge, you know, how everyone talks about, oh, well, if you can make sourdough, it's on the same level as running a marathon and donating three baby goats. <laughs> it's one of those things that it's just above and beyond and I just wanted to master it and I fixated on mastering it and I've always been like that and the other thing about Kitty is that she's a looker after you know when she was young we hatched some chickens from an incubator and she used to look after those in her bedroom in the bed Uh, (laughs) I took in some baby lambs that had been orphans they were one day old they too went into the bed even so, some piglets made an appearance in the do. bed. Yeah, so <laughs> the thing about sourdough is it's alive. Uh, and it is this organism, this creature that you have to keep alive and you've mm. got to nurture and you've got to feed. And I think that so taps into your mentality yeah. of yeah. just sort of thinking, this is something I need to look after. Mm. It's funny what you said, actually, about, you know, not tasting a great sourdough because my partner is obsessed with sourdough bread. He loves mm-hmm. it. And he will always bring it home. And... I'm kind of the same in the fact that I a lot of them I have, I'm like, yeah, it's okay. And then when you do have a good one, it's like, oh, okay. That, that's what it's all about. That's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. I, need to, I need to come and try yours. Kitty, tell me about Ferguson. <laughs> Where to start with Ferguson? <laughs> so Ferguson is my first starter. And he started it all. We still got him to this day. And he was my first love in a weird way. <laughs> So Ferguson I made when I really wanted to get into sourdough and I'd never done it before. And this is at a point where still getting up in the morning felt really, really hard. Still making sense of what I was doing each day felt really, really hard. And when I got Ferguson, it was this turning point. I started sleeping downstairs in the kitchen because I remember in the night I could hear him farting away over his jar. And I'd always, always be terrified that he was going to die in the night or something like that. But also, I think my bedroom became quite a lonely and isolating place. And being able to be close to him in the warm kitchen made me feel less lonely at night. And I started to sleep better. And Ferguson made some amazing, amazing yeah, bread. Absolutely. So our first 30 loaves were pretty inedible. They were dense, like frisbees. If you put enough butter on it, you could maybe eat it, but most of the time they up in the bin. But then after just going at it again and again and again and again, we did finally get there with the sourdough, and that was Ferguson. And then afterwards, we got, I got worried that Ferguson was lonely, so I bought a Muriel. Now we've got a whole little family, 
every now and again he'll spawn off another little child who will give to someone. <laughs> yeah, it's very prolific. I love the fact that you name everything. I think it's fantastic. So as I said, you, you decided you wanted to perfect sourdough and you did a lot of research and I talked about the fact that you went to London and you went to Gloucestershire. Did you have a clear vision at that point or were you just kind of navigating through and just trying to work out where you were going to end up? Again, we've never, ever had a clear vision of where we, even now, the 10 million places that we want to go, but we haven't got a clear vision of precisely where. In the early days, we never, we didn't even dream of opening a bakery. We were very much just surviving day to day. And for me, a way to survive was to bake. And that is what escalated into 10,000 hours of baking, which escalated into the bakery. But the visits to London, everything was all just because I was falling and I'd fallen deeply and madly in love with bread. And I just wanted to know everything about it and explore everything about it. And I think for dad, you saw that and you were also just trying to help me survive the days. So if I could go up to London, not only would it be amazing to see bakers and bread, but also that's that's a day plan. That's a day where... I'm out of my comfort zone, but I'm doing what I love. And it's mm-hmm. reintroducing me to all those things that just made my anxiety explode. I think the other thing is, you know, Kitty spoke really eloquently about the way in which everything sort of fell apart in terms of who she thought she was when the mental health really sort of hit home. And visiting these bakeries, one of the first things that we noticed uh, and that I noticed was when Kitty spoke to these bakers, they didn't treat her like a was you were a 14 year old girl mm. there you know they treated her like a baker mm. they were incredibly generous with their time but also there was no no patronizing sort of talking down they were genuinely fascinated by kitty's fascination and, and just being treated as an equal by someone you know whether it's a big burly 35 year old tattooed baker <laughs> or, or a lovely woman in the shepherd's bush bakery or laura hart in bristol I think that was a, a really important mm. sort of turning point because it was a chance for Kitty to start to rebuild a sense of self mm. for herself on yeah. really solid foundations. And I think for me, it was seeing that there was a world out there. Watlington was all I'd ever known. And I had friends at school, but it was very specific. It was very niche. You were only friends with people who were your age, your gender. You weren't and then the year above, unless you were really cool. <laughs> alternative, then you'd be friends with people in the year below. So being out in the world and being able to talk to people who I would have never talked to before, just showed me that there was more to what my bubble was. There was more out there. And that gave me confidence. And it also gave me goals to work towards. There were all these people who I saw who looked so strong and happy and independent. And I wanted to be them. I wanted to get there. And seeing them really helped. I bet it did. It's interesting, isn't it? It's that that whole thing about if you can have people from a whole range of different backgrounds, but if you've just got that one thing in common, it doesn't matter what that one thing is. I always think, say this when people go traveling, you know, you can be in the middle of Argentina with a bunch of people from completely different backgrounds, but because they've all got on a plane and gone to Argentina, you've immediately got something to talk about. Mm. Imagine the same is true with what you did. You know, you you all bake, you all enjoy baking. Therefore, there's your common entity. It's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So you were doing this kind of local delivery service and then you did a pop-up, which you advertised with orange pom-poms. Yes. So that came from my cousin, Daisy. She is about 10 years older than me and she had 
done a yarn bombing when she was doing a production. And the yarn bombing is where you get spools of wool, any colour, ours obviously were orange, and you knit them around trees and lampposts and gates, you name it. And me and Dad, we were, you know, we are good at baking. Mm. We thought we were pretty good with our hands. Not the case. Nope. We tried, we tried, knitting, and we tried. Knitting is, is black is, magic. I yeah. Mean, I don't know how My respect to all these 80-year-old ladies. Yeah. <laughs> so instead, we decided to go for the primary school version of knitting, which was pom-poms. Pom-poms. Yeah. And we made about 500 orange pom-poms. We made them. We got our subscribers to make them. Our friends made them. Lots of people got involved and made these orange pom-poms. Then about two weeks before our first pop-up, we dotted them all over the town. And this was in the evening. So when people woke up, it was like the whole town had been invaded by orange pom-poms. They were everywhere. Everywhere you looked, there was an orange pom-pom. You see little kids counting as many as they could on their way to school. That's so cool. Then about three days before... The orange bakery pop up, we then put the signs out because beforehand it was all a mystery. So we were like, What are these orange pom poms? What are they for? And we put the signs out saying orange bakery coming to Watlington. We were so nervous that no one would come. Again, there was that whole imposter syndrome. We planned out all these different organizations and people we were going to give the leftover bread to afterwards. And on the day, I remember we waked up about three o'clock and we baked and we baked and we baked and we loaded it all up into our van. We were doing the pop-up in the front shop of one of our friends. And about half an hour before the mm. pop-up, we looked outside and the high street was dead. I mean, it's not... Watlington is very proudly the smallest town in England. <laughs> and it doesn't have an enormous footfall. So we looked outside and there was one, maybe two people, maybe three dogs pop. And then 10 minutes later, there was a few people starting to queue. About five. And we were so excited, overly excited. We rushed out straight away instead of giving them little bits of donuts and little chunks of bread. Because, again, we're feeders. <laughs> Thank you. And then about five minutes before the pop-up, I remember looking outside and the queue stretched to about 50, 60 people. Oh, and my God. And we sold out within half an hour. It was all gone in a flash. So we did the same thing the next week and the next week and the week after that. It just kept going. You talk about um, you got approached by Soho House as well and were asked to do a pop-up there. When that kind of stuff happened, it must have been, you've talked a couple of times now about the imposter syndrome and the fact that you were like, not sure whether we should be here. But when organisations like that get in touch, surely that must have been a good feeling. That's an amazing feeling. Yeah. Again, yeah, we were just completely, I think Soho Farmhouse was a really interesting experience for us because we realised just how much it mattered to us that we were baking bread for our people, for Watlington, yeah, for our this community. Is, this is probably where we ditch our potential membership. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we future, loved but, it. Yeah. It was a very nice, <laughs> very nice people, place. We recommend people. it as a yeah. place. Yeah. But it made us really realise how important it was that when we sold bread, we were selling it to our community. And it's why lots of people come mm. to us now even and they go, oh, you should open an orange bakery in our village or my village near the sea or wherever it is. And although it's tempting, we know that then the orange bakery would lose the essence to what it really is, and that is Watlington and our community and our family. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's so lovely. Let's talk about how the orange bakery itself came to mm. being. Because your mum was speaking to somebody and found, they talked about a, a free shop being available, right? Is that well, not a free shop, a shop 
that was available and you were concerned about funding. And so somebody came up with the idea of doing a crowdfunder to raise the money. Mm. And that seemed to do very well. Yes. So um, you're right. So one day at one of the pop-ups, mum was handing out a bag of donuts to someone. And someone walked over and he owned a shop on the high street and he just loved how in the queue of the pop-up it seemed to bring everyone together in Watlington it didn't matter which street you lived on what school you sent your kids to everyone was queuing up for bread and he really loved seeing that so he was wondering if we'd ever want to take up the shop on the high street obviously we would pay rent but it would be no strong lease so for me, I was 14. I didn't want to sign up for five years of my life because that's a long time. So there would be no lease and the first month of rent would be free. This is really tempting, but we had about £200 stored up from the pop-up. Every penny that we were making was going straight back into the bakery. So we decided to look into crowdfunding. And crowdfunding is where you, we made a little video and you put up a little advert for exactly how much you need and what you need it for. And people hopefully will then contribute anything from five pounds to fifty pounds to a hundred pounds. So we made up this little crowdfunding site and we put a video of us talking on it and exactly what we need it for and we shared it and within forty eight hours we had hit our target and at the end of the three weeks we had doubled it. And these weren't just customers, these were bakers from Australia, America, New Zealand, all around the world, people were contributing whatever they had. Sometimes it was five pounds, but sometimes mm. you get someone who never met before contribute fifty pounds. Wow. Um, it was amazing. We still have we then painted this big orange tree on one of the bakery walls and then each orange we've written a crowdfunder's name. Oh. And sometimes people come in and their kids pick out the their name or <laughs> parents pick out show their mm. uncles their names. So it's yeah. really lovely. That's such a lovely way of thanking the people that have helped you. That's such a great thing. So your bakery opened in 2019, is that right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And it was, it, it is a huge success. How did it feel on the first day when your doors first opened? Well, we were uh, in a sleep haze. Yeah. I mean, sleep deprivation. <laughs> well, poor Kitty, that I think we sort of said in the book. Basically, oh. she managed to set the fire alarm off uh, about five times. Yeah. From yeah, about five o'clock in the morning. So uh, <laughs> that's how we felt death. <laughs> yeah. But it was yeah, it was still very very surreal. I, I think we just couldn't quite believe that that it was happening. But you know, it, it has happened and it continues to sort of astound us really. And I mean, obviously, to 2019, less than a year later, the COVID hit. What impact did that have on your business? How did you have to adjust mm. what you were doing? So we were really sorry. No, no, no. So we were really lucky, actually, because it was me and Dad running the bakery at the time. We didn't have to be really, really hyper aware of employees and things like that. Mm -hmm. It was really, really hard. We had that slight wartime mentality of, all right, we're one of the lucky few who can stay open. We need to feed everyone. We need to do our bit for this time. And um, we just went into overdrive. We started opening seven days a week. Everyone was wanting bread and stockpiling. People had their kids home. So bread especially was just selling out within an hour. My brother would take some loaves and then drive around the local villages, delivering to people self-isolating in this little red solo. And although it was an amazing time, it was also really, really exhausting because we also had all these people who 
their lives had completely stopped and it was an amazing summer so some of them were just lying out in the garden and we were sweating away and although we loved it it was really exhausting looking back yeah it did slightly break us it did i think it taught us a lot of lessons about what's sustainable and what's not Mm. Um, and i learned that actually i think mm. when the shop had opened my mental health was really really good and i was no longer dependent on bread i was in a really really good place but then when lockdown happened it was really hard because I just didn't know how to be sustainable. I started working 16, 17 hours a day. And of course, my mental health just like nosedived. And I didn't realize that. And I didn't know how to get myself back whilst working because bread had been my salvation. Bread had helped me through so much. And now it was bread that was causing my bad mental health. So it was a really confusing time. And I'm really, really proud how we got through it. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. You saying wartime mentality is so true. I think those of us that kind of continue to work and have these crazy periods of time where you just had to put your head down and as a small business owner, keep it going. That's exactly what it felt like, isn't it? So that parallel is definitely, it sounds a bit dramatic because obviously we weren't being bombed. But, you know, you had that same mindset of there was something bonkers going on in the world that you had no control over and your bit of your life had to just keep mm, going somehow. yeah exactly now let's talk about your book mm, yes so bread song is coming out on the 28th of april and it's kind of a combination of a memoir but also some of your amazing recipes how did this come about where to start yeah. again i feel like this is the same story over and over but we did not set out to write a book we didn't set out to open a bakery we didn't set out to write a book one day a lot of my stories start with one day one day <laughs> Someone came to us and they were an agent from Bloomsbury and she was really, really lovely. She just, she'd heard about our story. She'd bought our bread and thought it was amazing. And she wondered if we'd ever consider writing a book. We invited her around and of course we fed her. <laughs> a lot of posts. And we just talked it all through and she just seeded the idea. We then didn't do anything for about a year. Mm. Yeah, for about a year after that, we didn't really do anything because we were working really, really hard and we just didn't feel we were ready to write a book. But then just after lockdown, it was, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah, just after lockdown, we started to really reflect at how far we'd come. And I think the biggest thing for me was I had finally realised that my mental health really wasn't my fault. I'd felt a lot of shame and embarrassment about it. And now I overcome that and I realise that none of it was my fault and I shouldn't feel ashamed and I shouldn't feel embarrassed and neither should anyone else. And for me to be able to write the book was to be able to tell other people that they shouldn't, there's no reason to be afraid of your mental health. There's no reason to be ashamed. And I really wanted to share that with everyone. I think you're right. So I think it was a, a sort of quite a catharsis for the kid. And for me and Katie, you know, my wife, Katie's mother, <laughs> two of the same, there's many uh, drinks at it's, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was just a moment in time where we had a chance to just stop and look back as well. Uh, things just sort of slow down a little bit after our sort of manic wartime bit. We just had a bit of time to sort of start thinking, gosh, it really has been a fairly extraordinary journey and starting to sort of, you know, get some of that down on paper. And then Boothry got in touch again and everything sort of, you know, flowed from there. Mm. 
I love the fact that they approached you. I think that's wonderful. I really like the layout of the book. I like the fact that you have, you know, one bit from, from your perspective out, then the next bit from your perspective, kids, and it just, it flips. And I think that's really wonderful because you the two voices talking about the same thing, but coming at it from very different angles. It works yeah. really, really, really well. Yeah. Well, it's the way we talk. I think that's the thing about the book. We wanted to make it as natural as possible. So you mm. felt like we were talking to you mm. and that is how we wrote it. So we're so happy you felt that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's a gorgeous book. The advanced copy that I've got doesn't have the recipes in. <laughs> I know, they're coming, they're coming. <laughs> I've been told it's something to look forward to, but I was more interested in the story myself anyway, because the baking, I'll leave to leave to other people. I'll, come to, I'll just come to your bakery and have your... Have your... <laughs> um, I think it's going to be incredibly well received. I think the combination of the work that you guys do and, and the journey you guys have been on is quite incredible. Um, we'll certainly be telling everyone about it here at the shop. So um, thank you so much for sharing your story today. It was so thank lovely you. chatting with you both. Lovely and, um, you too. Wish you all the best with the publication of Bread Song. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you very, very much. All of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Mostly Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because apparently it helps people find us.